Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. All right, pop quiz. Only answer this if this applies to you. How many of you were born this week? Oh, just Elowen? Okay, so just Elowen, who, let's see, today is day six, right? So please congratulate Luke and Krista Taylor. And it's so nice to see Elowen with us as well. It's good to see you guys. You had an eventful week, you know, hurricane, baby, the huge, right? All right, great to see everybody. Last week we started our study of one of my favorite books of the New Testament, the book of Ephesians. And through our study, we're going to be talking about God's eternal purpose for His church. And there's two ways you could look at a statement like that. You could say, all right, God's eternal purpose for His church. That sounds very theological. And it's true that the book of Ephesians is a very theological book. When you read the first half of the book, you could see all these things that God has done for us. And then when you read the second half of the book, you could see all these different ways that we can apply what God has done for us. But when you see church, when you see this idea of, you know, God having an eternal purpose for His church. I don't want you to only think of that from a theological lens as if you're talking about other people. As we go through these things, and as Scripture brings up these concepts, I want you to realize that if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, as the Scripture is talking about church, it's talking about your family, it's talking about you. So let's think of these things from a very personal standpoint, a very personal lens as we take a look at some of the things that the Lord's uh, brought up to us in this portion of Scripture. And today we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1, starting with verse 15. And the question I want us to wrestle with, the overall question, I'm going to ask several sub-questions as well, but the overall question I want us to wrestle with today is this, do you express what you're thankful for? And you'll see very quickly why I'm asking that question this morning. Do you express what you're thankful for? So take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, we finished up at verse 14 last Sunday. And so today we're going to pick up at verse 15. And I'm going to read to us uh, verse 15 down to verse 23. But then I'll encourage you to just keep your Bible handy because we're going to keep referring back to it. But this is what it says in Ephesians 1, starting with verse 15. It says, For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at this portion of Scripture together today. And Lord, we recognize that This isn't a terribly long portion of Scripture that we're looking at. We're just looking at a a small set of verses. But at the same time, Lord, there are some 
eternally significant things that you reveal to us in this portion of your word. So, Lord, we pray that as we look at these things, that you'd help us to understand them. We pray that we would grow in our walk with you. We pray that you'd encourage our hearts and just help us to be men and women who put you first in all areas and men and women who really learn what it looks like to be thankful and express that thankfulness, just like we can see the Apostle Paul doing in this portion of Scripture. So we commit this time to you, Lord. We thank you for your presence with us, and we pray that by the power of your Spirit that you would enlighten our eyes and our minds to understand these truths And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So with with two of my children in college and a third less than a year away from college, I am frequently reminded about what that season of life was like for me as well. I think about it a lot. Sometimes we exchange stories. Sometimes it's very comical. Uh, And I have to say, overall, I had a very positive college experience. When I look back at that time, I have mostly positive memories. I learned important things. I made great friends. I even had the privilege of meeting my wife. It was also during that time that the Lord clarified my calling for me and helped me to understand how he wanted me to live the next season of my life, serving him. So lots of benefits came to my life uh, during that college season. I know some of you are in that season right now. But I also have to admit, if I'm perfectly honest with you, that there were a few aspects of college that were less than ideal. And what I mean by that is this, one issue that started to become pretty noticeable to me during that particular season was the prevalence of complaining. I noticed it a lot. In fact, I still remember when it dawned on me that a large segment of my friends were doing that with regularity. It just seemed like they would just complain about everything. So every time we got together, the complaining began. I heard complaints about professors. I remember hearing complaints about assignments, complaints about dorm life, compl- complaints about the preferences of other students, complaints about what, the kind of music people listen to, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I remember at one point just getting to a spot where it really started to grate on me. Remember thinking, I don't want to hear this anymore. And it was bothering me, especially at meals. I don't know if you, sometimes, do you ever watch a dog eat? Sometimes I feel like I eat the same way, just with utensils. In the sense that, you know, like when a dog is eating, what is, it, what is a dog basically communicating with its posture and maybe its, its teeth? Don't bother me. I am eating, Right. And I remember sometimes my, she's my wife now, she was my girlfriend at the time, Andrea and I were, we'd be at meals and, and people would start complaining and I started to feel like a dog getting defensive about his food. It was like, stop bothering me with the complaining. And I would just feel my blood boil inside and it started really bothering me. And so I said to Andrea at one point, I suggested to her that we maybe just find some more positive people to eat our meals with. I said, do you think, like, I'm not saying we stop being friends with the people we're friends with, but do you think we might be able to find, like, some people that are a little bit more positive than this to at least eat our meals with so that I don't feel so provoked the whole time? And she said to me, don't you think our friends are going to notice if we stop eating meals with them? And I replied, and this is how you could tell she's a nicer person than me. I was like, they might, but we should still do it. Like, and it's okay if they notice, because then maybe I'll just tell them, like, you guys complain all the time. I really needed a break from the negativity. And so for a season, we sat with other friends. And that was a long time ago, but I've noticed something throughout the course of my entire life. It's not just college students who complain. People at every season of life can make that a habit of their conversation if they aren't careful about it and if they aren't intentional about it. I have noticed that many, many people, they spend the the bulk of their conversation, it's almost like every conversation opener or every, hey, how you doing, 
is then followed with a complaint. And I think, why do we do that? You know, why, why is that something that is such an easy habit for us as people? And I'm not just talking about unbelievers. I'm talking about believers as well. I think people at times complain more than they give thanks. And when I look at this portion of Scripture, I'm reminded of something different. I was thinking about that a lot this week based on what Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, starting with verse 15, it's a very thankful portion of Scripture, isn't it? Now, we just read it, and we'll take it a segment at a time and reread portions of it here. But it's a very thankful portion of Scripture. And in it, when you look at what Paul says here, he expresses his thankfulness for a variety of things. He expresses his thankfulness for other believers. So he's just, I mean, do we ever take time to do that and just say, Lord, thank you so much for the people that you placed in my life? Thank you for them. He thanks God for his power. We're going to go into some of the details of that. He thanks God for the authority of Jesus Christ as it's demonstrated. So I I wonder how we might be able to express that same kind of thankfulness as an application of what Paul states here in this portion of Scripture. And I'll tell you what, one of the ways, I think one of the most obvious ways that we could express that kind of thankfulness is to begin by praying for those that we love. So how should you pray for those you love? Let me read again the first few verses here, starting with verse 15. Paul says it this way. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then he says this. He says, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, prayer is a gift from God. When you think about the things that the Lord allows us to experience and the things that the Lord allows us to do, one of the things that's a real blessing from him and a real gift is the fact that we can come before him in prayer. It's an undeserved blessing that our Lord allows his children to be able to utilize, something he allows us to do. And what do we do when we're praying? Well, through prayer, we express our trust in the Lord. Through prayer, we confess our mistakes. And that's something that I believe that the Lord wants us to do with regularity so that we call those things out and don't allow them to dominate our day-to-day lives. Through prayer, we offer thanksgiving. You see Paul doing that here in this portion of Scripture. Through prayer, we seek God's intervention in our lives. And so Paul here was eager to pray for those he loved, And I would say, even before we get into some of the details of this, we should be eager to pray for those we love as well. And as Paul was writing this letter, keep in mind where he was when he was writing this down. We mentioned this last week, but Paul was under, he was was imprisoned in Rome with like a home confinement. It was a home imprisonment. And, uh, you know, he was waiting for a period of time. It's believed that he, he spent about two years in that, in that context, but he was under house imprisonment in Rome. And while he was there, he had time to think. And he also had time to receive correspondence from other people and visits from other people. And one of the things that was brought to his attention was the faith of the Ephesian believers. And not just them, but people from the region as well. But their faith was on his mind. He would think about it. Word of their growth in Christ, word of their love for one another was the type of thing that was, that was reaching his ears, and so he made it a regular habit to remember these Christians in prayer. And in this portion that we just read, Paul lists some of the things that he was praying about, and his list is very specific. 
Now, I've mentioned this before because I remember it kind of startling me, but years ago, I remember asking a close family member to pray about something very specific for me. And I asked her, I was like, could you just pray about this? Could you pray about this very specific thing? And her response to me was, I can't do that. And I was like, why can't you pray for me? And she said, well, when I, when I pray, I have a hard time asking God for specific things. That was her response. And I said, well, then what do you, what do you pray about? Like, if you're not being specific, like, what does your prayer sound like if you're not ever being specific about anything? And I think it was her fear that she might somehow step out of line of the will of God if she got too specific in her prayers. But when I look at what Paul is saying here, he's praying for some very specific things. And I would encourage us to to think about some of these specific things and even pray about specific things. Because as long as we're entrusting our requests to God and not asking Him to violate His nature and not asking Him to violate the clear teaching of His Word... I don't believe that it's wrong to make specific requests of God in prayer. Now, it's up to Him to answer those requests however He chooses, and it's up to us to humbly accept whatever He decides, so to be okay with His will, even if His will is different from what we were presupposing. But that does not prevent us from seeking His specific intervention in very specific ways. And when you look at what Paul prays about here, he prays for very specific things on behalf of these believers. So when you look at Paul's words here, it says that that basically he prayed that the Holy Spirit um, would do things in the life of these believers, that they would be blessed with wisdom and revelation. That's an interesting thing to pray on someone else's behalf, that they would be blessed with wisdom and revelation. Can I tell you as a parent, that's something that I pray for my children regularly, especially as uh, they move into different seasons of life. I think, you know, when we're, if we're trying to navigate life without wisdom, that's something I pray for myself regularly. Lord, please give me wisdom. If we have wisdom, then we'll know how to apply the Scripture to the right circumstances of life. And that's not a request that ever expires, nor do I see that as something that the Lord ever tells us no. Where can you find in Scripture a moment where the Lord does not honor that request? It is His desire for you that you have wisdom. That is in line with His will. Why would he give us the scripture if he didn't want us to have godly wisdom? Why would he not, or why, why does he give us the internal presence of his spirit if he doesn't want us to have wisdom? And here you have the apostle Paul praying that these believers would be blessed with wisdom and revelation, that God would make things clear to their minds and their hearts as they went through life. He also prayed that they would love the Lord deeply. Well, that's a pretty great request, isn't it? When I look at loving the Lord, I realize that that's the highest motivation I can have for doing anything, isn't it? To love and to glorify Christ. You know, it's much higher motivation than any of my selfish ambitions. And so here Paul prays for these believers that they would know the Lord deeply, that they would, that they would love the Lord deeply. He prays that their hearts would be enlightened. He prays that they would have deeper spiritual insight into God's nature and will. He prayed that they would have a deep and abiding confidence in the hope that the Lord had blessed them with through Christ. And he also prays here, when you look at what he says, that that they would grasp the riches uh, or the richness, I guess he says here, of their spiritual inheritance as believers. That's a pretty cool list, isn't it? When you look at the variety of things that Paul's praying for on behalf of these believers. But he's making some very specific requests. And as you read his list, I want you to do something with it. I actually want to challenge you to do something in particular with it. 
Would you be willing to begin praying that very same list for those that you love? What I mean by that is this. Would you begin praying these things for your spouse or your children or your grandchildren? Or would you begin praying these specific things for your friends? Would you pray these things for our church family? I'd even suggest that we begin praying these things for ourselves as well. And then let's just see what the Lord does in our day-to-day lives, because I believe that these are requests that he delights to honor. These are things that are very much in line with his will. And so you have the Apostle Paul praying for the believers that they would experience these things. And sometimes I think to myself, all right, Lord, how do you want me to be praying for the people that I love? How should I be praying for my wife? How should I be praying for my children? How should I be praying for our church family? How should I be praying for myself? How should I be praying for my friends? How should I be praying for people that have set themselves against me? How should I be praying? And I look at this list, and I think, boy, that's a pretty good list. And I think that if we started there, I think we'd be amazed to see some of the things that the Lord did in the lives of those that we care about and in our lives. And so you have Paul praying very specifically for those that he loved in this particular way, and I'd encourage us to do the same. But then he starts to talk about this idea of power. And so the second question I just want to throw out to us today is this, do you know what it means to rely on God's power? Because Paul segues this conversation as he's talking about prayer, and then he segues very naturally into this concept of power. And the way he phrases it in verse 19 and in verse 20 is like this. He says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? It's very interesting, a very powerful portion of Scripture. Now, um, over the course of the past few weeks, I had kind of a, an, one of my favorite things that I like to do interrupted, or my pattern for how I, I, I like to do this interrupted. And um, I bring this up way too much, so I'm going to do it again. But many of you know that, that one of the things that I very strangely enjoy is mowing my lawn. All right? I don't think I've mentioned anything about it in at least two weeks. So... Um, So, you know, show me some slack. But I enjoy mowing my lawn. I find it very relaxing. Uh, And the past bunch of weeks, it's been raining and raining and raining. And so this past week, I practically had to mow it twice just to, because I had to bag it and then go over the areas that were still a little high. It was, it was, my lawn became a forest, but I tamed it. But now with all the rain we got this week, I have to mow it again tomorrow. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, I think I'm going to have to bag it a second time. And it's only been um, well, I, I have not yet mowed my lawn during the course of Elowen's life, now that I think about this, you know? Ever, I haven't mowed, so it's been a long time since Elowen was born. I haven't, I haven't mowed that lawn. Um, but one of the things that uh, I have found is that I find it very relaxing to do that, all right? It's a task that's very different from many of my tasks during the course of the week. It doesn't require a lot of thinking. It doesn't require a lot of emotion. Uh, I find it to be a very helpful diversion that gets me outside doing something different And it's a diversion from my other responsibilities that sometimes can weigh on my heart. Well, mowing doesn't weigh on my heart. All it does is uplift my heart, right? I'm just out there mowing, and it's delightful. And when new tools that are supposed to make that process easier are invented or come out, I tend to be an early adopter. So I tend to be a pretty early adopter of these things. And 20 years ago, someone came out with a battery-powered weed trimmer. Now, even before I tell you about this battery-powered weed trimmer, Is there anyone here that would be a skeptic that a battery-powered weed trimmer could do a good job? I see some very skeptical faces, and I understand that. I understand your skepticism. And you know what? 20 years ago, 
you were right. Because I traded that, that uh, you know, I got that battery-powered trimmer. I used it for a little bit. I thought it was great. And then quickly I had to accept the fact that it just didn't hold on to power enough for me to actually finish my lawn. So I went right back to using a gas trimmer. But last year, my gas trimmer broke. Now, it had been 20 years. And someone told me, hey, the technology is a lot better than it used to be. And I thought, is it really, though? Because I've been duped before. And I don't have a very large lawn. And I don't want to buy one of these things and then discover it can't even complete this lawn. But I was told that it would do a good job. And so I took the risk. And I went out and I bought a battery-powered trimmer, even though 20 years ago the technology wasn't quite there. But I have to tell you, I'm two seasons into it, and uh, it does a great job. It even came with a battery-powered blower. And, uh, and I thought to myself, should I bring that on Sunday morning and actually show the church during my message? And I, I really had to think about this last night, and then I thought, well, probably for the sake of the live stream and the recording, I shouldn't be running a blower here during the... But there's no exhaust, it's just an electric blower. But I'm just amazed at how well the thing works. It actually is holding up fine, and it actually has great power. And he, here's the thing that might surprise you. It has more power, that blower in particular, it has more power than the gas blower that I used to use to clear off my sidewalks and stuff like that. It has more power. I don't know how they're doing it, but it works real well. Now, living in the era that you and I live in, we value power. I know some of you this week lost power because of the extreme weather that we had. And sometimes when we lose power, what happens? We don't know what to do, right? We think, oh, I hope I, I, hope I charged my phone before the, the power went, oh no, I'm only at 40%. All right, don't use the phone, don't use the phone. That lasts for 20 minutes and you're like, let me use it a little bit because I don't have internet right now because the power's out, so I gotta use the phone. And so we find ourselves doing that or you're probably running your car for an hour just so you could charge your phone, you know, doing stuff like that. We value Power. Power is something that we need in all spheres of life. And when you look at what Paul's talking about here from the spiritual standpoint, he makes it clear that God understands that, that God understands that you and I need power, but on a deeper level than we typically think about. And God offers us his power in prayer. But do we understand what it actually means or what it actually looks like to rely on the power of God? And as Paul here was praying for the Ephesian believers, he also makes a point to pray that they would become highly acquainted with and would make great use of God's power because his divine power is available to all who trust in Jesus Christ. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, the power of God is available to you. But are you relying on it? Are you making use of it? God's power, as Paul describes it here, is the working of his great might. So think about that. What does that mean? The working of God's great might. When you think about this idea of the working of God's great might, we're talking about something in relation to his power that reveals to us that God's power is active. God's power is energetic. His power is mighty. His power overcomes the things that are set against it. One of the things that I love when I'm reading through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, when you have the opportunity to see what Jesus did during the course of his earthly ministry we could see the miracles that he was accomplishing during that particular season. And what he was doing was demonstrating his divine power. He was demonstrating the power of God in the midst of a context where something was set against it, or something was very much in line with the natural order, and then Jesus intervenes and does something supernatural to show us how the power of God can be accessed and utilized and how it's available to us. And you see that all throughout the gospel accounts, 
as people are healed of different things, as the dead are raised, as, as food miraculously appears, as, uh, as all sorts of things happen. Then you go into the book of Acts, and you can see the power of God demonstrated in the early church. And I don't know what it is, but it seems like the more sophisticated the church has become over the centuries, the less we think it's proper to feel like it's appropriate for us to access the power of God or to admit that we're fully relying on the power of God or to ask God to do something supernatural. Because I think sometimes we think, ah, people might think I'm a little fanatical if I ask God to intervene in miraculous ways. And yet here, what is Paul praying about on behalf of the Ephesians? He's praying that they would, that they would understand and experience the greatness of God's power, the greatness of his power. By nature, God is strong. So strength is an inherent quality of who God is. And I love the example that Paul gives us here of the power of God, because the the mighty power of God was put on full display in a very specific moment in history that Paul wanted the church to notice. He wants us to notice it. He wanted uh, the believers at Ephesus to know. And that was when Jesus was raised from the dead and seated at God the Father's right hand. When Jesus was raised from death, you see a demonstration in the most powerful way of God's mighty hand, God's power at work. And I think it's one thing to understand these things academically and to be able to look through Scripture and say, okay, God obviously has power. He spoke creation into existence. He sustains creation that he spoke into existence. He obviously has great power. So it's one, it's one thing to understand these things academically. But I wonder, are these concepts that we understand in day-to-day practice as well? And what I mean by that is this. Are you approaching each day with profound confidence in the fact that the same power that raised Jesus from death is at work in you? That the same power that raised Jesus from death is at work in you, at work in me, at work in all who trust in Jesus Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul is trying to make clear in this portion of Scripture, that the very same power that raised Jesus from death lives within you and is at work within you. So are we making use of God's power? Do we rely on God to to, to use His power to do miraculous things? Do Do you even believe that we could utilize or access the power of God? Or are we attempting to live a powerless life because we, because we haven't yet developed a mature understanding of the benefits of our union with Christ. We're united with Christ. We are His bride. We are His body. We are the church. We're part of the family of God. And as such, we're united to Christ, and we have access to the power of God. So think about this in a very practical way. And I want you to think about this in regard to the most recent season of temptation you've gone through. When you're going through a season of temptation... Do you seek God's power to overcome it, or do you keep telling yourself the lie that you're powerless to do anything about it? I would suspect that many, if not most people, go through life thinking that they are powerless in the midst of their seasons of temptation. And yet Ephesians 1 tells you and tells me that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you if you believe in Jesus. So are you powerless in your seasons of temptation? No. Does the devil want you and me 
to think we are powerless in the midst of our seasons of temptation? Of course he does, because if you think you're powerless, you're not going to do anything to really resist the temptations that come your way, because you think, there's nothing I can do about this. And yet, what does Paul reveal to us? God's power is at work within you. How about this? When doctors, and I, you know, I trust the opinions of doctors, but when doctors tell you that it would take a miracle to restore your health or to restore the health of a loved one, do you ask God for that miracle? Or do you just adopt a fatalistic stance instead and say, you know what, it would take a miracle, so let's just not even ask? It's like, no, they just told you it'll take a miracle. You know someone who does those things, and he lives inside of you. So ask him. Sometimes he says yes. Paul wanted the Ephesians to understand, and he wanted, to rely, he wanted them to rely on, he wanted them to utilize the power of God. And I think in a very applicable way, you and I should make that our aim as well. And if the power of God is something that we are thankful for, Let's live and let's pray like we actually have access to it. There's one other thing that Paul brings up in this portion of Scripture that I want to point out to us, and you can see it in verses 21, 22, and 23. And it's, uh, I'll pose this as a question related to authority, but the question is this, are you willing to submit to Christ's authority? So he's been talking about prayer, he's been talking about power, and now he finishes this section out with this discussion of authority. Let me show you what he says here in verse 21 down to the end. He says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. So I saw a statistic just this past week. I've actually seen it several weeks in a row, but I saw it again this week several times. And the statistic estimated that in this coming year, we can estimate that roughly 41% of all employees in the United States are going to either change jobs or resign from their positions. Has anyone else seen that statistic? They're starting to give it a term. You'll hear this if you haven't heard it already. The Great Resignation. Have you heard that? The Great Resignation. That's what they're calling what we could expect over the course of this past year, or this coming year, I mean. And I think that that's probably got a lot of truth to it. So 41% of current employees here in the United States are either about to change jobs or are thinking of resigning from their positions. Now, some have made that decision based on uh, a desire to experience a different kind of work. They've had some time to think about what they do, and they want to do something different. But others are making their decisions based on the fact that they're tired of dealing with poor leadership in their places of employment. And so that's a big factor, according to what I've read as well. And most of us have had to deal with that at some point. I would suspect if you have had multiple jobs throughout the course of your life, you have probably had people that were good leaders that you worked with and, and terrible leaders that you worked with. I have worked with all kinds of bosses, but all kinds of jobs throughout the course of my life. And some were a joy to work with, and I, I learned a lot from them, and some were absolutely miserable to work with and did not understand how to encourage or motivate people. And I remember at times praying to the Lord in the midst of seasons like that, thinking, Lord, what am I supposed to get from this experience? And I think sometimes one of the things that he's taught me with is, if you're ever put in a position of leadership, don't lead like that. Remember how you felt and never do this to anybody else because you feel miserable right now, right? And so 
most of us have had to deal with that at some point. Because this world is filled with leaders. It's filled with authorities. This world's also filled with, and keep in mind, this is going to be, this is going to be uh, um, explained to us further and further as we get into the book of Ephesians, but you have the Apostle Paul alluding to this here as well, that this world has natural leaders and natural authorities for sure, but there are also spiritual forces at work in this world that love to selfishly hold on to power and lord it over as many people as they possibly can. But the kind of leadership we experience through Jesus Christ and the kind of authority He wields is vastly different. Scripture tells us that Jesus, you know, as you look at what Paul says here, that Jesus is above any human or demonic or angelic authority, that He's above all those authorities, above any human authority, any angelic authority, any demonic authority. He's above it all. And that's true in the present age that you and I live in right now. It's also true in the age to come. And I think it's going to be very obvious in the age to come when you look at what Scripture tells us. Scripture also tells us here that the Father placed all things under the authority of Christ, and that Christ has been made head of the church. So these are the things that Paul's explaining in a very real way here. Now, by the grace of God, think about what a privilege this is. By the, and we're about to partake of communion together. So have this in mind even as we partake of communion in just a few minutes. But by the grace of God, we are welcomed by God into His family, the church, when we trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And when you look at what the Scripture tells us as an added benefit of that, or an outpouring of that, we are likewise filled, as the Scripture says here, and it means that we're blessed and that we're gifted in Christ. So we're blessed and we're gifted in Christ. We are filled in Christ. We've been blessed with the glorious hope of being able to see beyond our present circumstances. We're granted supernatural power that we may serve one another and build one another up. And our service to one another is all supposed to be done under the authority, under the leadership of Jesus Christ. And so as we finish our look at this passage today, I just want to ask something. And I want you to contemplate something as I ask this, but my question is this. Are you willing to submit to Christ's authority? Because the Scripture here tells us that He is the authority in your life and in my life. So let's, let's make this very pragmatic. When you're making decisions, how are those decisions being made? You're making decisions. How are those decisions being made? Do you primarily make your choices based on feelings? That's what most people do, by the way. Have you noticed that? Most people make their choices, whether it be good choices or bad choices, based on their feelings. So what does it tell you about your soul and what's going on inside of you if you make your life choices based on your feelings primarily? What's Lord of your life? Your feelings. Guess what? Your feelings lie to you a lot. So do you want to make your lying feelings in charge of your life? Do you want your lying feelings to be the authority calling the shots in your life? Is that a demonstration of biblical wisdom? No. The authority in your life and in my life, and we could be super grateful for this, is Jesus Christ. And so if we're submitting ourselves to the authority of Christ, that factors into how we make decisions and how we're making our primary choices in life. How about this? When you're making choices in life, are you making choices based on, primarily on what you think will benefit you? I, I, I feel bad saying this. Anyone familiar with uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young? This is going to date me a little bit. Okay, I recognize this. All right. All right. So anyone, anyone ever hear of uh, even just Neil Young? 
Do you ever watch a football game and hear them play the song, like, keep on rocking in the free world? All right, that's Neil Young, okay? So Crosby, Stills, and Nash, also Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Did you hear what David, let's, let's talk some gossip here. Do you hear what David Crosby said uh, uh, about um, Neil Young? I just read this yesterday. You're not going to believe it. He said, you know who Neil Young thinks about all the time? Himself. That's what he said. He said, I'm 80 years old, I'm just going to speak plainly. Neil Young only thinks about himself. He said, and he said, I can understand why the guy might not like me, because I talk bad about his wife. And I'm like, what am I reading? I'm like, what? like, of course you guys aren't friends anymore. If you talk bad about a guy's wife, he's not going to like you. But then you're also saying he thinks about nobody but himself. And I thought, is this true? I have no idea if it's true. I just know that it was said in, in, in uh, an article that I was reading about. And I don't know why I was reading the article, but I was reading an article about this spat between David Crosby and, and Neil Young. And so I thought to myself, okay, well, Neil Young's getting called out here. Just like in that song, Sweet Home Alabama, he gets called out all the time. Do you ever listen to the words? You know that song. Everyone knows the song. It's our closing song today, by the way, Sweet Home (laughs) Alabama. Our worship leader didn't realize that, but I'm just going to call an audible on that one. Listen to the words. In the words, Leonard Skinner, what do they say? Uh, I hope Neil Young will remember a southern man don't need him around anyhow, right? Thank you. (laughs) All right. So Neil Young, at the early season of his career, he gets called out. And here he is at the later season of his career getting called out. Can I just tell you something? It's easy to point out somebody else's faults and very difficult for us to notice our own. And we are no different than Neil Young. (laughs) No different. Because you know what I tend to think a lot about? What benefits me? And I don't like to admit that, and sometimes I don't even realize I'm doing it until someone points it out to me. And you know what you tend to think about? What benefits you? And so I often think about when I look at a portion of Scripture like this, it's like, okay, what does it mean to submit my will to Jesus Christ? Well, you know what it often means? Hey, John, stop thinking about yourself or what will benefit you. Think about what will glorify him and benefit the people that he's put in your life. Because that'll be a demonstration of a mature faith. And we could also pray for my friend Neil Young, who's apparently wrestling with this too. He doesn't know he's my friend, but he's my friend. (laughs) Let me tell you about one more, guys, as we finish up. You ever hear of the name Ole Hallisby? I don't expect that you have. He's not a very popular person in English-speaking circles, but if you go to Norway, people in Norway know who this guy was. He was a conservative Norwegian Lutheran theologian. He lived until 1961. And during the course of World War II, he was also someone who vocally opposed Nazi occupation in Norway. So he spoke about it. And so guess what happened to him? He loved Jesus, and uh, he spoke out against the Nazis. And so what they did was they put him in a concentration camp. And he was in a concentration camp for two years until the war ended, and then he was finally released. But in the midst of that experience, you know what he learned? Jesus has power. And there might be earthly authorities that can force you into concentration camps, but Jesus is the ultimate authority. And it was in the midst of that experience that his faith in Christ developed even further and became even stronger. And he became even bolder because he saw what Jesus was willing to do for him in the midst of a very difficult circumstance. And I want to finish this up today with just a quote from Ole Hallisby, because it's a quote that inspires me. And this is what he says. He says, And he's speaking of prayer, but he's speaking about power, and he's speaking about authority. And he says, 
Prayer is the risen Jesus coming in with His resurrection power, given free reign in our lives, and then using His authority to enter any situation and change things. Isn't that a great quote? Just think about it again. It's really a summary of everything we just looked at from Ephesians 1, verse 15, down to verse 23. It's a summary of that chapter. It says, prayer is the risen Jesus coming in with His resurrection power. So the resurrection, of power, the resurrection power of Jesus is something accessible to you and me through faith in Him, right? He comes in with His resurrection power. He's given free reign in our lives to call all the shots. And then He uses His authority to enter any situation and change things. And when we're praying, we're saying, Jesus, enter into this situation and change things. Can we just say that our culture needs Jesus to enter into this situation and change things? Does it not? And by the way, if you feel hopeless when you look at a lot of things, from time to time, make sure you read the end of the story. Because I'll tell you what, Jesus has promised he's going to enter into the culture, he's going to enter into the situation, and he's going to change things. And when he changes it, it's going to be permanently changed. And just like the Apostle John says at the end of, of the book of Revelation, he just prays, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I get that prayer more and more. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Rule and reign in my life right now, and rule and reign in this world as soon as possible. All Hallows, we understood that. That's something we can understand as well. I am thankful that Jesus has done so much on our behalf. I'm thankful that he continues to intervene in our lives. I'm thankful for the fact that he grants us grace to express our thankfulness to him in prayer. And I'm grateful that he inspires our hearts to actually be willing to submit to him because that is not the natural inclination of our hearts. The natural inclination of our hearts is to rebel against him, but he impresses upon our heart the desire to submit to him. And a life submitted to Christ is a life that he does amazing things in and through. And be prepared for the type of things that he will do in and through your life if you truly will submit yourself over to him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace and your love. And thank you for the fact that as we look at a portion of Scripture like this today, that we can look at it and rejoice because we can see your hand at work. You're showing us a variety of things that we could be thankful for. We live in a world where so many of us just spend all our time complaining or so much of our conversational time complaining. And then we look at what the Apostle Paul happens to say here, and he just expresses great thankfulness thankful for the believers that he has the chance to interact with, thankful for you and for what you've done, thankful for your power, thankful for your authority. Lord, it's amazing to be able to look at these things, and we pray that we would be genuinely inspired by what we see in this portion of Scripture and that this would make a marked difference on our day-to-day -day lives. Lord, we're grateful for your love, and we're grateful for the privilege that it is to walk with you. And Lord, we pray that we would submit ourselves over to you completely without reservation. We pray that we would trust in you fully and that we wouldn't allow our lives to be governed by our feelings or governed by our selfish desires or, or governed by our covetousness, but that rather we would welcome your authority in our day-to-day -day lives and that that would have an impact on how we interact with those we love, how we speak to others how we use our lives. And Lord, even as we think about those that you've placed in our lives, we pray that we would learn to pray for them in accordance with the pattern that's given to us in this portion of Scripture. I pray, Lord, that these would be the type of things that we begin praying for those that are closest to us and even those that feel distant from us. We, pr we pray for our spouses in accordance with this list, for our children, for our grandchildren, our friends, our neighbors, 
our coworkers. None of those people are in our lives by accident. So, Lord, we pray that we would pray for them in accordance with the pattern that we see the Apostle Paul praying for the church at Ephesus. Lord, we're grateful for your love, and we're grateful for the fact that we see your love demonstrated through your Son, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life on our behalf, who was willing to experience the excruciating death and pain and torture and and shame that came with dying on a cross to atone for our sin, and who rose from the grave on the third day as your power accomplished its work raising His body. And now through Your Son, Father, that same power is at work within us. And You promise us a resurrection as well. So we pray that we would live with the knowledge that that's true and that that would impact the way we perceive our day-to-day lives. Thank You again, Lord, for Your blessings and for Your Word and for the fact that Your Son has accomplished all these things on our behalf. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.